liquid trees, roach, sex, mammoth, balls, um, yeah, I'm thinking it's time for another banger episode of the one and only, the most hated podcast of known rotten corpse Ronald Reagan, most loved podcast of Henry Winkler. Apparently, he was actually listening to my podcast while on the set of Barry Season 4, and before you come crying about how that's physically impossible since Barry Season 4 was filmed last year and I famously premiered on Earth this year, time is a conscious and you merely choose to experience it experience it linearly, unlike Henry Winkler, who exists in all places at all times and is always enjoying the intellectual, intelligent, indescribable, incorrigible, acutely obtuse podcast. Greetings, my esteemed colleagues and fellow turd hurlers, and welcome to episode six of the Acutely Obtuse Podcast. The Hell Episode. Yeah, that's right. I said hell. Six is the devil number because of reasons I don't care to look up right now. So we're in hell for this episode. Will we get out of hell and ascend to heaven for episode seven? The holiest episode? Well, you just have to wait and see... That's right. I'm introducing continuity into the Acutely Obtuse podcast, and there is nothing you can do to stop me. The executives at NASA told me that for them to keep funding my podcast, I'd either have to boost my listenership or cut it with the misinformation. And you know mother didn't raise no truth teller. I'm a pathological liar out of a constant fear of retribution for honesty, which is why I am in hell. But who cares about me? How are you doing today? I hope you are having an absolutely splendid day, but if not, that is perfectly okay. I'm in hell, and yet somehow that's not the most stressful thing that's happened to me this week, so I am having a normal one. My fish family are far from hell, though. I made sure that was included in the contract with Satan, my soul for all of them to go to that great big freshwater lake in the sky where they can eat their own children and harass snails to the point they literally die all they please. Yeah, that happened. Quite the downer tale we shall not dwell on here, so instead let's discuss all their goofy little antics. I've got two tales of goofiness from this week. One is while I was sitting on the floor because... Again, normal week, and the time admittedly was growing close to when they like to eat their dinner. Clearly, my fish have not mastered the art of perceiving time as a sphere upon which one can walk like Henry Winkler. And while I was on the floor, I was nearby the corner of their tank. And when I looked up to see all of them gathered in that corner, staring down at me intensely and expectantly. They knew what time it was, and I made the grave mistake of being late. The other goofy tale from this week was that one night I decided to play some music, and I think some of my little guys might have enjoyed the music a bit too much. Especially the Mingus. Mingus came on, and the couples started, well, 
coupling, as they do. Speaking of coupling, roach sex is a thing we will be discussing this episode, along with mammoth meatballs and liquid trees and a whole host of other very important science news tidbits. And since we're in the hell episode, we will be having a Hunger Games matchup between science figures from history and lore. Who will come out as the ultimate scientist? Will Charles Darwin beat Edwin Hubble to death with a stick? Well, you'll just have to wait and see. But of course, that is not all. There is also This Week in Space and... A brand new segment. That's right. We at the Acutely Obtuse Podcast are always innovating, never stopping, always pushing ourselves. But before we can get into any of that junk, it's time for my personal favorite segment, the Aaron Update. There's a silent A before the word update for alliteration's sake. I've got branding to keep up with, I'm in hell, and NASA is threatening to cut our funding. I think they really didn't like what I had to say about their merch compared to the Canadians. For any new turd hurlers, naive souls discovering the joy of tossing one's excrement for the first time, I am wildly fascinated with how science journalists hype up the sizes of asteroids. But nobody does it as well as our friend Aaron over at the Jerusalem Post. Believe me, I look. I want to highlight a wider variety of ingenious creatives, but what can I say? Aaron is at the top, and nobody dares to shoot for the king. We have two new fantastic Aaron headlines since you and I last spoke. The first being, quote, Asteroid the size of 33 armadillos to past Earth Sunday, end quote. Classic stuff from Aaron. Who else would look at an asteroid and think, armadillo? But we've got one more Aaron headline that I think rivals some of their best work. Quote, Asteroid the size of 18 platypus to fly closer to Earth than the sun, end quote, exquisite. As always, no notes needed. Aaron sees the world in a way few of us ever could. You know who else perceives the world in a way few of us ever could understand? Plants. That's right, for our first big science news headline of the episode, of the hell episode, of the Acutely Obtuse podcast, we are actually going to talk about something quite beautiful and interesting and fun. I still haven't figured a way out of hell yet, but there are a surprisingly large number of books down here about the power of positive thinking, so maybe that's what I need to be focusing on to get out of here. And my big positive news of the week, plants make noise. Yes, plants. What many a human has believed only to be background to their main character adventure are actual living beings that respond to positive and negative stimuli. Wow! Who could have guessed that the living thing 
acts like a living thing. I bring this up all the time on the Acutely Obtuse podcast, but it genuinely astounds me how bad humans are at realizing that all living things are alive. And don't you dare accuse me of anthropomorphizing plants and fish. The stuff I talk about is just genuinely true. Most living things, or at least most living animals, are social and respond to the universe around them. I'm not anthropomorphizing other things. I'm simply asking humanity to realize we aren't special godlike beings that descended into a lifeless video game level made for us to explore. We are part and parcel of the universe, and a lot of things that make up us exist in other things as well. Anyway, rant over, plants make noise. Yet another example of Final Fantasy being absolutely correct, the researchers in this study started with a simple idea. Most living things respond to sound, so why couldn't plants? Or at least they make sound, you know, the, 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 most living things either make sound or respond to sound, they, they live in the sound waves, the soundscape, an inescapable scape of sound and waves. Professor Haddeny at Tel Aviv University then made the bold move of putting an ultrasonic microphone up to a cactus and seeing what noise the plant made. At first, the professor was unsure if the noise they captured was the plant itself or just background sound waves, so the professor and a bunch of other researchers got together and put plants into soundproof boxes to record their debut album. The plants were tobacco plants and tomato plants who had been kept under different levels of care. Some were overdue for a nice watering, others had their stems cut, and others were just left completely fine, and guess... What? Not only did the plants make noise, though it was at a frequency humans cannot hear, but they made different noises based on how well they were kept, or how healthy they were, or how stressed they were. The sounds were recorded as sort of popping and quick clicking, and the more stressed a plant was, like the plants that needed water or were cut, the more they clicked. Stressed plants would click around 30 or 50 times per hour, while content and happy plants would click only about once an hour. Now, while I wish I could keep saying this is absolute proof plants are social and talk and scream out in distress when they are upset, the truth is there are no, there's no evidence these noises are intentional. Instead, researchers believe these popping noises come from air bubbles in the plant's water column collapsing, something which can happen when the plant isn't being as properly taken care of. So while the plants may not be talking to each other as I had hoped, and Final Fantasy lied to me again, this popping may still be useful to other animals who can hear at those frequencies and are looking for healthy plants with lots of water and things like that. Regardless, this is an exciting discovery, and I know the researchers repeatedly said this should not be interpreted as plants having emotions or communicating or anything like that, 
But I would still like to believe my plant is, whether intentionally or unintentionally, screaming at me when it needs water. Since we're already in this whole plant zone, let's discuss the discourse of the week, liquid trees. In case you have a life and are not constantly in tune to the screaming voices of the void, all across the internet this week, people have been talking about liquid trees and how they could potentially revolutionize how we address climate change. First of all, I have to do the obligatory, of course, instead of actually making changes to the way things work and reducing the amount of garbage we pump back into the earth, we'll just make liquid trees that will fix everything. And secondly, a bunch of the usual suspects, aka internet bros, are loving this idea. But I'm here to completely, well, not completely dash the idea, but bring a heaping dose of reality to it. First of all, those are not liquid trees. It's just another wacky gimmick internet and marketing bros have come up with for an incredibly simplistic thing that has already existed forever. Because you want to know what so-called liquid trees really are? Algae. It's, it's just algae. <laughs> Liquid trees are just water tanks full of algae. If we're calling tanks with algae liquid trees, then boy, I've had a liquid tree in my apartment for the past few months with my fish tank. See, my tank isn't overrun with algae blooms because I'm really bad at regulating tank nutrients and finding a proper balance of light to help the plants thrive while not encouraging algal blooms. I'm saving Mother Earth. I'm not doing a worse job at cleaning my fish tank because of depression. I am a climate warrior. My liquid trees shall make up for all the driving I do to buy more bananas. Okay, but to give some credit to the whole liquid trees thing, it's, it's not the worst idea in the world. Mainly these algae fish tanks have been implemented in big urban areas where it is difficult to help plant trees and help them thrive. And since algae does suck up a lot of CO2, even better than some trees, it's certainly better than just giving up because you can't plant a tree. My problem is not with the concept, my problem is with the bros. This is always what happens. Scientists come up with some practical solutions that we could implement when appropriate to help address an issue in our world. And then the bros come in and are all like, Dude, we should totally just replace all the trees. Look at this sleek looking box. I love cyberpunk anime and I think the future should be sleek and boxes everywhere. No! Shut up! Don't you dare take away the trees! Trees still provide a ton of just normal environmental benefits like homes for animals and shade and a ton of other stuff that fish tanks just can't do. I know it's the internet, but there are people actually thinking we should get rid of all the trees and put a bunch of fish tanks in their place because it's more efficient at getting the carbon out of the atmosphere. 
Here's a crazy idea. What if we put less carbon in the atmosphere in the first place? Or what if we didn't judge every tiny little thing on this planet on its utility to you? Okay, I'm definitely overreacting, but the point is algae might be helpful. But to anyone seriously suggesting liquid trees as a... Oh, I hit the microphone. I am so sorry. I'm getting heated. Anyone suggesting liquid trees as a replacement for trees, join me in hell. Hey, speaking of hell, the time has come for me to reveal the brand new segment I was teasing. You ready? Are you frothing with anticipation? I'm sorry, but I can't reveal what the new segment is until your froth runneth over. You ready now? Okay, good. Here it is. The new segment of the Acutely Obtuse podcast, Planet of the Week. We will be highlighting one cool or interesting or noteworthy or garbage planet each week because I want to. And since this week is all about hell, we are looking at the hell planet. Or at least the most hellish planet NASA has in their exoplanet database at the moment. They're always finding new, more hellish planets, so maybe we'll have more hell to dive into for episode 666 of the Acutely Obtuse podcast. A number of episodes we will definitely someday get to. I swear I will not burn out on this project by... Wait, let me do the math. If we make one episode a week... And there are 52 weeks in a year. That means to get to episode 666, we will have to keep making the Acutely Obtuse podcast for... Another 12.8 years! Dude, I don't even know if I'll be alive tomorrow, let alone 12.8 years from now. I guess this is my new reason to keep going. I can't let the void take me yet. I need to get to episode 666 of the Acutely Obtuse podcast because it would be funny, haha! Wow. First instance of the new segment, and we have already dove completely off the rails. Hell planet. Hell world. Hell body. Hell place. Exoplanet Kensri E. Also known as Jansen. Jansen seems like a name somebody could have. Imagine working at NASA and having somebody hate you so, or having someone you hate so much, like a terrible ex, that you could name a hellish exoplanet after them. Now, wouldn't that be a nice gig? New career ambitions unlocked. Jansen is a planet with a mass of almost eight Earths and is hanging out around 41 light years away from us. Using NASA's Eyes on Exoplanet program, we can see that this is a potentially rocky planet, and the artist rendering... Well, it looks how you, like how you'd imagine a hell planet would look like. It's shockingly close to Mustafar, just red and orange and fiery and bloody and everything like that. There is lava on the planet's surface. As you'd expect, this is a hell planet, in fact, the surface of the planet is so hot, scientists claim no known life form would be able to survive, but what makes it even more interesting is that because of silicates in the atmosphere condensing into clouds and reflecting the lava on the planet's surface, 
the sky would literally sparkle. So, you would be stuck in burning lava, staring up at a beautiful heaven-like sky forever just out of reach. Yep, that sounds like hell alright. A year on this planet is also only 18 hours, and if that doesn't, sell hell if that doesn't sound hellish, then I don't know what does. Imagine the taxes. Every 18 hours, it's tax season again. Literal hell. So there you go. That's the Planet of the Week. Tune in next time for another Planet of the Week. I will, I will pick based on my whims. This is the Acute to the Obtuse podcast, after all. The least scientific science podcast. Ooh, that's a good tagline. Maybe I should use that. Enough talk of planets and taglines. Time we jump right back into the science news. And oh, what important news we have to discuss. Such as the T-Rex likely had big old kissy kissy lips. Just imagine those wax lips things on the mouth of a T-Rex. Okay, maybe it didn't look exactly like that, but experts are starting to believe that Unlike many of our current artistic renderings of the T-Rex, where it has no lips and you can see all of its big teeth as at once, the T-Rex may have been a bit more withholding and hid those teeth behind some lips. By looking at T-Rex teeth, researchers have noticed that while it is believed T-Rex would keep a tooth for a year, their teeth are surprisingly well maintained for having been used for a year. Other animals with teeth and no lips will usually have some not-great-looking teeth in much less time. So clearly, something must have been helping the T-Rex take care of its pearly whites. Thus, the idea for lips came in. Further evidence supporting this idea was found by looking at the skulls of T-Rex, which have similar holes and avenues for nerves and blood cells as found within modern-day lizards that have lips. So, the T-Rex's teeth were really well maintained, they have all the infrastructure necessary for a healthy pair of lippy lips, all signs are pointing to lips. Probably not the big kissy kind, although I'm sure art of that exists somewhere in the deep dark depths of the internet. You know that's someone's thing. And if for some reason, art of dinosaurs with big kissy lips doesn't exist, well, then the internet artists are slacking. Come on, people, the demand is high and the supply is low. This is an opportune time to get in on that market. It is also an opportune time to discuss something that terrifies me. This is the balance of the Acutely Obtuse podcast. No light without darkness. No peace without war. No good news without, um, excuse me, what news? I don't know if you're ready for this one. The liquid trees thing was bad enough, but here we have yet another instance of people wanting to make an artificial version of a natural phenomena. Artificial meteor showers. You heard me right. Engineers are wanting to make artificial media sho meteor showers where they drop little balls from satellites in space down to Earth. This is not a joke, no matter how ridiculous it may sound, deeply serious people are seriously proposing this. Well, I guess they... they are engineers, so... 
It's more like people who take themselves deeply seriously, but literally nobody else does. The plan is for the world's first artificial media shower to take place over Japan in 2025. Now, to be fair, there are actual scientific reasons for why scientists are wanting to drop little balls from space, and it's not just because they want to drop little balls from space because it would be fun, although I have a hunch that is definitely part of the motivation. Scientists want to use these little balls to gather more information about the mesosphere and give us more information about how the atmosphere works and what climate change is doing to the atmosphere. But mainly it's just to drop little balls from space. I mean, come on, who wouldn't want to do that? Hmm, that news wasn't nearly as bad enough to counteract all the fun we've been having today. I'm in hell for God's sake, give me some hellish news. Oh, well, a little demon just came by and whispered in my ears something about mammoth meatballs. <sighs> okay, fine. I'll talk about the big, massive, honker mammoth meatballs using woolly mammoth DNA. Instead of bringing back the animal like we were promised, or studying it, or anything like that, we made a big meatball for a big old bowl of spaghetti. We used our invaluable time on this earth to make a big meatball out of an extinct creature. Jurassic Park got it all wrong. We won't bring back all the extinct creatures, you know, just to look at them or to study them. Some billionaire loser will just open up some expensive exclusive island restaurant where you get to eat extinct creatures and then a bunch of articles will come out about how the dodo giblets have naturally healing properties and then one day the chef running the place will get fed up with all these ungrateful billionaires who judge him without understanding the science and art behind the proper preparation that goes into dodo giblets and then, hey, wait a minute, I think I've heard this story before. Once again, though, to be fair and unbiased like the unbiased man I clearly am, the scientists who created this are using it as an example of how we can create lab-grown meat to replace farming practices that are killing the planet, which I am all behind that. I've been behind the idea of lab-grown meat since I was a baby. Making food to feed people without having to actually kill anything? Yeah, that seems like a pretty good solution to me. Although at the same time, veganism is also an option. I'm not a vegan myself. I've been leaning closer to the vegetarian end of things as of late. I like the idea of veganism, but dude, those people are hardcore. How do you go without cheese? Cutting out all the meat has honestly been pretty easy. It's the cheese that's the line for me. Whatever you do, do not cross a vegan, because those people must have a will of steel. But I also bring up the idea of veganism and plant-based diets because, okay, look, I get the idea of using lab-grown meat. It all makes a lot of sense, and I support it. But, like, there are people freaking out at the idea of going vegetarian or even just having a Beyond Meat burger as an option. How do you think the public will take being told their meat came from a lab? I can smell the culture war bubbling. 
I don't know. The small optimistic side of me likes to think lab-grown meat could be a revolutionary movement that improves the treatment of animals and the health of our planet. But the much larger pessimistic side of me is just tired. I need something to pick me up. A little funny, a bit of a goof, if you will. Here we go. Roach sex. That's right, I'm talking about roach sex. You see, because of human activity, mainly our constant attempt to kill cockroaches, the cockroaches have had their sex lives all jumbled up. The use of poison against cockroaches has seriously messed with their ability to reproduce, but new research has found that the roaches are evolving and finding new ways to keep the act of lovemaking alive even in their poisoned state. Honestly, it's kind of a beautiful thing. We are literally seeing evolution take place in real time. Here's what's been happening. Roaches love sugary glucose because it's an important part of their mating ritual. I'm not going to get too deep into the the semantics of roach sex, but when a boy roach and a girl roach love each other very much... The boy roach starts to excrete a little sugary substance that makes the girl roach very happy. So she climbs up on the boy roach to get the sugar, and then the boy roach uses this time to make some babies. Humans then exploited the roach love for glucose by making glucose-based poisons that attract the roaches and then kill them. At least, it was killing them. They have evolved. Some roaches are evolving to no longer like the taste of glucose. In fact, they now think it is bitter, which is so cool from an evolutionary natural selection standpoint. We introduced glucose that kills, so the roaches that really like glucose all died, and the only roaches that got to reproduce were the ones that didn't like glucose, So now roaches are evolving to not like glucose anymore. But there is a problem. If the roaches don't like the glucose anymore, how is the boy roach supposed to attract the girl roach? The answer is even more evolution. The boy roaches have been evolving to change the chemistry of the substance they excrete to make it more tasty to the new girl roaches who don't like that glucose stuff anymore. The boy roaches now use more of another kind of sugar called maltortriose, which is not how the poison was produced, so the evolved girl roaches like this new sugary substance. Also, boy roaches have evolved to become faster at, uh, latching on to the girl roach to get things... Moving. Isn't that so neat? Through roach sex, we literally have a concrete example of evolution taking place in like the past 40 years. I don't know. I think it's cool. What do you mean you aren't interested in roach sex? Well, I guess that's why I'm down here in hell and you're up there on earth. We have time for one more big science news before the break, and since I'm already on the topic of lovemaking, let's just keep this train rolling, baby. I don't care what NASA says about listener retention dropping off the more I talk about insect sex. I don't care. This is my show, and I'm in hell, so there's nothing left for me to fight for anyway. 
I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about, which is the fact that some female spiders play dead during sex. I'm sure you have heard about the whole thing that female spiders sometimes eat their mates and things like that. Understandably, this makes male spiders a bit scared to get it on if they might end up dead or eaten afterward. Female funnel spiders are using this whole thing to their advantage. What they do is they play dead so that the male spiders are not as scared of them. So male spiders start to approach the female spider. But if the male spider is a spider the female does not want to have babies with, the female spider will suddenly stop playing dead and scare off the male spider. If the female spider does like the male, then it continues to play dead so as not to scare off the male spider, effectively giving the female spider complete choice and control over how the whole thing plays out. What's interesting about this is that the male spiders are fully aware the female spiders are faking being dead, which makes sense, because what would be the point of trying to make baby spiders with a dead spider? This means that, yeah, the whole playing dead thing is basically the female spider's way of getting to choose who they want and scare away those they don't. I don't know, I think that's fascinating, and I also think the time has come for a break. But don't you dare leave me down in hell, because when we come back, it is time for The Hunger Games with famous scientists from history and a few others. Trust me, it is absolute hell, you won't want to miss it. It's time for a special message from Bob and Laddie, two of the biggest fans of the Acutely Obtuse podcast after Brian Coxall of Nasa Dame Judy Dench, Bill Clinton Kid, and Henry Winkler. Hey, Bob, are you enjoying this cornucopia of sin called the Acutely Obtuse podcast? No. Well, you must be godful then, because I'm godless. Only the damned love the Acutely Obtuse podcast as much as I. But Larry, you are damned. We run a Christian television program for children. Surely God must accept our penance. Nope. Check the lore. Vegetables don't go to heaven. That's not a joke. I'm completely serious. In the lore of vegetables, no vegetables can go to heaven. And that's why we say God loves you very much. Not God loves us very much. Because God despises us. And we are just in for nothing with the scorching lakes of Hades. Wow, Larry. I'm very depressed now. Then listen to the Kill the Obtuse podcast. It will solve absolutely none of your problems and make you wince with pain. But the more pain we endure, the more prepared we are for our fated eternal vacation to the balls of the planet. Did you say balls of the planet? Where do you think hell was stored, Bobby? Well, in any case, listen to the Acutely Obtuse podcast. God picked his few chosen before the beginning of time, and the rest of us are damned to hell, no matter what we do. That's also not a joke. Check the deep lore of the Bible. But by listening to the Acutely Obtuse podcast, our souls tread one step closer into the fire, and by the time the flame of our lives extinguish so that a flame of doom may burn ever brighter, hell will feel like home. That's right, Bob. And remember, kids. Pray that you are one of the few chosen by a Ethel Getty before the beginning of time or else suffering the eternal fires of S.H.I.E.L. And now it's time for Silly Songs with Laddie. This one's about the time he accidentally committed tax fraud. Thank you, TurboTax. Tax. 
After you spend a few days down here in hell, you get used to the heat and it starts to become kind of like a hot tub. Sure, the demons eating your liver and then growing you a new liver so they can eat it again gets a bit old fairly quickly, but honestly, put a bubble tea place down here and I think you I, I think you could have some prime real estate in hell. Oh yeah, we're doing the whole podcast thing still. Welcome back, colleagues and turd hurlers, to the Acutely Obtuse Podcast. I'm still in hell, and I don't know... Maybe I don't need to leave hell? I, I think I finally, for the first time in my life, have found somewhere I truly feel like I belong. But enough of my personal ponderings. The time has come for the famous scientist's Hunger Games. What can I say? The official Hunger Games social media accounts have started back up to hype up the new movie coming out later this year. They're literally just posting a bunch of fan cams. It's fantastic. I love to see the marketing people actually understanding their audience for once. Hunger Games was a formative part of my childhood. I came up with, uh, with this idea to have a scientific Hunger Games in hell. And it is in my darkest hours I bring my worst ideas. So we are doing Hunger Games with famous scientists. In case you are an uncultured swine who hath never played Hunger Games games before, there's a tool online that allows you to put in the names of 24 people, two from each district, and then it will basically generate a story of a Hunger Games battle that takes place over the course of a few days, and then one person reigns supreme. This thing came out in like 2011, back before people were lazy and just used crappily constructed artificial intelligence to pump out lots of generic content. This Hunger Games simulator was crafted with love and human ingenuity. But before the battle can begin, we must go through the pairings from each district. I will not be taking any questions on why these people are here or why they are paired together. Honestly, if you really understand science, I think all of these pairings should be fairly self-evident. In District 1, we have Albert Einstein, of course, and his partner, Bill Hader from Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, Flint Lockwood. From District 2, we have Isaac Newton and... A coughing baby from District 3, Nikola Tesla, and my personal least favorite... Elon Musk. He volunteered his tribute, and who was I to deny the public the chance to be relieved of Elon Musk? From District 4, Marie Curie and Greg from Succession, two underappreciated legends. In District 5, Charles Darwin and Vexen Kingdom Hearts. From District 6, Galileo and Neil deGrasse Tyson. From District 7, Rosalind Franklin and Papyrus Undertale. From District 8, Alan Turing and Miles Tales Prower. From District 9, Rachel Carson and Mia from Megamind, from District 10, Alfred Nobel and Boss Baby, from District 11, Mary Anning, and that one dinosaur on the airplane that says Alan in Jurassic Park 3, and finally, hailing from District 12, Edwin Hubble and Kevin from 321 Penguins. 
This is going to truly be the battle of a lifetime. Who shall reign victorious over all other scientists and be the one true science person to rule them all? Find out now in the acutely obtuse science showdown Hunger Games. We start with the bloodbath. All the tributes stand on their podiums. The horn sounds. Alfred Nobel runs away with a lighter and some rope. Albert Einstein finds a bag full of explosives. Wow, okay then. Coughing baby runs away from the cornucopia. As a coughing baby would. Elon Musk snatches a bottle of alcohol and a rag. Oh look, he might actually make something for himself for once. Flint Lockwood runs away from the cornucopia completely in character. No notes there. Alan Turing runs away from the cornucopia. Alan Dino grabs a shovel. That makes me a bit nervous. Galileo and Edwin Hubble fight for a bag. Galileo strangles Edwin Hubble with the straps and runs. Oh, wow. Our first death of the games, folks. Galileo Galilei has strangled Edwin Hubble. Rachel Carson snatches a pair of sighs. Uh-oh. Charles Darwin runs away from the cornucopia. Mary Anning stays at the cornucopia for resources. Smart. Love to see it. Minion from Megamind runs away from the cornucopia. Makes total sense. Nikola Tesla runs away. Rosalind Franklin runs away. Neil deGrasse Tyson runs away. Greg from Succession runs away, as he would. Vex in Kingdom Hearts runs away, as he would. Miles Tails Brower runs away with a lighter and some rope. Now that is dangerous. Who knows what he could create with that? Boss Baby and Mary Curie fight for a bag. Boss Baby gives up and retreats. Looking more baby than boss right now, eh, Boss Baby? Kevin from 321 Penguins is unable to convince Isaac Newton to not kill him. Oh, no. Our second death of the day. Kevin just couldn't do it, which totally checks out. And Papyrus Undertale takes a handful of throwing knives. Dear God. Alright, so that was the starting bloodbath, and now the day continues. Galileo receives medical supplies from an unknown sponsor. Alfred Nobel sprains his ankle while running away from Neil deGrasse Tyson. Minion from Megamind hunts for the other tributes. Greg from Succession sees smokes rising in the distance, but decides not to investigate. A real Greg move there. Charles Darwin discovers a cave. Always making discoveries, that Darwin. Rachel Carson, Car Rosalind Franklin, Coughing Baby, and Nikola Tesla team up to hunt for the other tributes. Albert Einstein receives a hatchet from an unknown sponsor. Boss Baby fishes. Alan Turing receives medical supplies from an unknown sponsor. Vexen Kingdom Hearts hunts for other tributes. Alan Dino receives medical supplies from an unknown sponsor. Mary Curie strangles Flint Lockwood with the rope. No! He was supposed to win it all! Miles Tails Prower scares Mary Anning off. And finally, 
Papyrus Undertale overhears Elon Musk and Isaac Newton talking in the distance. Is this a new team up between these two on the horizon? Or is Elon Musk just trying to take credit for discovering gravity? With that, we have reached the end of day one. Three cannon shots can be heard in the distance for the three who fell this day. Edwin Hubble from District 12. Kevin from the 321 Penguins from District 12. Wow, so District 12 just completely fumbled the game. And Flint Lockwood from District 1. Now we move into the night. Alan Turing convinces Rachel Carson to snuggle with him. Minion from Megamind quietly hums. Albert Einstein and Vex in Kingdom Hearts talk about the tributes to the live. Not the friendship I would have expected, but okay. Miles Tails Prower sets up camp for the night. Neil deGrasse Tyson cries himself to sleep. Aw, poor Neil. Alan Dino goes to sleep. Rosalind Franklin and Mary Anning tell stories about themselves to each other. Papyrus Undertale. Boss Baby. Galileo Galilei and a coughing baby sleep in shifts. What a, what an incredible matchup of absolute titans. Mary Curie severely injures Elon Musk and puts him out of his misery. Elon Musk couldn't even get through the first night and he volunteered as tribute. Wow. Good riddance. Isaac Newton receives fresh food from an unknown sponsor. Greg from Succession loses sight of where he is. Nikola Tesla severely injures Charles Darwin and leaves him to die. Oh, wow, that got dark quite fast. And Alfred Nobel thinks about home. But soon after, the sun rises and a second day dawns. Coughing Baby and Papyrus Undertale split up to search for resources. I really don't think anyone should be leaving the coughing baby alone. Neil deGrasse Tyson tried to spear fish with a trident. Greg from Succession tends to Albert Einstein's wounds. Aw, wholesome friendship blossoming. Vexen Kingdom Hearts travels to higher ground. Nikola Tesla receives clean water from an unknown sponsor. Rachel Carson severely injures Isaac Newton and puts him out of his misery. Wow, another one gone. Rosalind Franklin goes hunting. Alan Turing sprains his ankle while running away from Alan, Alan Dino. And there we go. This, my friends, is the actual team up of the century right here. Okay, you ready for this? Miles Tails Prower, Alfred Nobel, Mary Curie, Mary Anning, and Minion from Megamind hunt from other tributes. Oh, and also Galileo scares Boss Baby off. It's time for the update on all the dead people. There are three cannon shots. Elon Musk from District 12, Charles Darwin from District 5, and Isaac Newton from District 2. Night falls. Greg from Succession stays awake all night. Galileo destroys Papyrus Undertale's supplies while he sleeps. How rude. Alan Turing looks at the night sky. Nikola Tesla questions his sanity. Sounds about right. Rosalind Franklin is awoken by nightmares. Neil deGrasse Tyson, Mary Anning, Boss Baby, and Mary Curie tell each other ghost stories to lighten the mood. 
God, how I would love to hear a conversation between that group. Vexing Kingdom Hearts stays awake all night. Rachel Carson loses sight of where she is. Coughing Baby defeats Albert Einstein in a fight, but spares his life. Absolute Chad Coughing Baby takes down big-brained Albert and is then like, No, I'll let you live this time, but cross Coughing Baby again and you'll wish I had killed you. Miles tells Prower, and Albert Nobel tells stories about themselves to each other. Cute. And then Minion from Megamind lets Alan Dino into his shelter. Ooh, what's going on there, huh? No time to think about that, because day three has dawned. Greg from Succession taints Nikola Tesla's food, killing him. Damn, Greg, he really is the silent killer. Rosalind Franklin collects fruit from a tree. Papyrus Undertale receives clean water from an unknown sponsor. Mary Anning discovers a river. Minion from Megamind overhears Boss Baby and Rachel Carson talking in the distance. Interesting. Neil deGrasse Tyson thinks about home. Mary Curie picks flowers. Alan Turing explores the arena. Vexing Kingdom Hearts sees smoke in the distance but decides not to investigate. Alan Dino receives an explosive from an unknown sponsor. Alfred Nobel stalks Galileo. Albert Einstein sprains his ankle from running away while running away from miles tails per hour. He just cannot catch a break. And Coughing Baby practices his archery. I don't know, man. Coughing Baby seems quite ruthless. I think he might have a chance of winning it all. One tribute has fallen. Nikola Tesla from District 3. A relatively calm day. Onto the night, Mary Anning tends to Coughing Baby's wounds. Greg from Succession and Vexen Kingdom Hearts talk about the tributes to the live. Uh, excuse me? If those two team up, everyone else is doomed. Rachel Carson and Neil deGrasse Tyson huddle for warmth. Oh, oh no! <gasps> Minion from Megamind decapitates Boss Baby with a sword! Dear God! The DreamWorks characters are killing each other! Alfred Nobel fends Alan Dino, Miles Tails Prower, and Papyrus Undertale away from his fire. Single-handedly, that is that, that is impressive. Rosalind Franklin tries to sing herself to sleep. Albert Einstein and Mary Curie huddle for warmth. Mm -hmm. Alan Turing receives a hatchet from an unknown sponsor. And Galileo loses sight of where he is. Use the sky, Galileo. Come on. You know this. Okay, day four. Alan Dino tried to spear a fish with his trident. Rachel Carson begs for Papyrus Undertale to kill her. He refuses, keeping Rachel Carson alive. Papyrus is just too good of a dude to take a life like that. Alfred Nobel questions his sanity. Rosalind Franklin, Minion from Megamind, Alan Turing, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and Vexen Kingdom Hearts hunt for other tributes. These team-ups are getting genuinely scary. Coughing Baby defeats Mary Curie in a fight, but spares her life. 
My god, that's the second time Coughing Baby took someone down and had the chance to kill them and went, No, I'm too good to kill you. Albert Einstein injures himself. That guy has been having quite the tough time. Mary Anning tried to spear a fish with a trident. Miles Tails Prower falls into a frozen lake and drowns. No! But Tails is such a good boy! He doesn't deserve this! Greg from Succession searches for firewood. Galileo constructs a shack. Two cannon shots for two deaths. Boss Baby from District 10 and Miles Tails Brower from District 8. Truly, this is a dark day. Night falls. And mother-loving, coughing baby defeats Minion from Megabind in a fight, but spares his life. What, is Coughing Baby just going to go around and do this to everyone in the entire game? Galileo cries himself to sleep. Albert Einstein tracks down and kills Papyrus Undertale. What did he ever do to you, Albert? Greg from Succession, Mary Anning, Mary Curie, and Neil deGrasse Tyson sleep in shifts. Rachel Carson fends Alan Dino, Alan Turing, and Vex in Kingdom Hearts away from her fire. Goddamn, good for Rachel. Rosalind Franklin receives an explosive from an unknown sponsor, and Alfred Nobel goes to sleep. Day 5. Alan Dino tends to Mary Curie's wounds. Rachel Carson stalks Greg from Succession. Minion from Megamind tracks down and kills Neil deGrasse Tyson. Wow, okay, did not see that one coming. Galileo receives fresh food from an unknown sponsor. Coughing baby dies from an infection! No! The legend! Gone too soon! Well, I guess now we know why he was coughing. Vexen Kingdom Hearts begs for Mary Anning to kill him. She refuses, keeping Vexen Kingdom Hearts alive. I don't know, Mary. I think you should have just taken him out. Alfred Nobel tries to spear fish with a trident. Albert Einstein kills Rosalind Franklin as she tries to run. Damn, quite the comeback for Albert. And Alan Turing bleeds out due to untreated injuries. That's just depressing. Five cannon shots. This is the bloodiest day so far. We lost Papyrus Undertale from District 7, Neil deGrasse Tyson from District 6, Coughing Baby from District 2, Rosalind Franklin from District 7, and Alan Turing from District 8. Nighttime again. Alfred Nobel goes to sleep. Greg from Succession tries to treat his infection. Rachel Carson forces Vex and Kingdom Hearts to kill Mary Curie or Megamind or Minion from Megamind. And he decides to kill Minion from Megamind. Goddamn, Rachel, that's dark. And also, Vexen totally made the right call there. Alan Dino goes to sleep. Galileo stays awake all night. Albert Einstein starts a fire. And Mary Anning cannot handle the circumstances and commits suicide. Wow, yikes, incredibly depressing. Now we head into the feast. The cornucopia is replenished with food, supplies, weapons, and memoirs from the tribute's families. Alan Dino decides not to go to the feast. Greg from Succession decides not to go to the feast. Vexing Kingdom Hearts repeatedly stabs Mary Curie to death with size. Well, goddamn. I guess in the end, Vexen killed both Mary and Minion. Wow, okay then. 
Galileo dies from an infection. No! Alfred Nobel decides not to go to the feast. And Rachel Carson bashes Albert Einstein's head in with a mace. Goddamn, poor Albert just could not catch a break. For day six, the only thing is a team up of Alfred Nobel, Vex and Kingdom Hearts, Rachel Carson, Alan Dino, and Greg from Succession. They're hunting for one of the tributes. What is this team up? Five cannon shots for five fallen tributes. Minion from Megamind from District 9. Mary Anning from District 11. Mary Curie from District 4. Galileo Galilei from District 5. And Albert Einstein from District 1. We are nearing the end of the journey, folks. Only a few remain. On to the night. Alan Dino, Vex and Kingdom Hearts, Alfred Nobel, and Rachel Carson tell each other ghost stories to lighten the mood. And Greg from Succession dies from thirst. No! Greg, I was rooting for you. You were supposed to win it all. On to day seven. Alan Dino hunts for other tributes. Alfred Nobel receives an explosive from an unknown sponsor. Vex in Kingdom Hearts practices his archery. And Rachel Carson accidentally detonates a landmine while trying to arm it. Rachel! You're smarter than this. Two cannon shots. Greg from Succession from District 4 and Rachel Carson from District 9. Night 7. Alan Dino receives medical supplies from an unknown sponsor. Vexen Kingdom Hearts sets Alfred Nobel on fire with a Molotov. Is this seriously going to come down between Alan Dino and Vexen Kingdom Hearts? I swear to God. Day 8. Alan Dino poisons Vexen Kingdom Hearts drink. He drinks it and dies. That's it. Alan Dino from District 11 is the winner. Not at all what I expected, but you know what? He deserves it. Well done to all the tributes. What a what an incredible matchup that was. We cannot dwell on the incredible things of the past, though, for we must dive deeper into the cesspit of science news to find any new and exciting bits of science news to stuff you up with so you can sustain yourself for the rest of the week like a snake. The Acutely Obtuse Podcast is your weekly rat. For some reason, that just feels right. Here's a good tale to add to your little rat here. Scientists may have found an ultramassive black hole with a mass of 30 billion suns. Yes, that was, an, that was the IGN headline for this story. Yes, I am sorry and ashamed of myself and will go do like 40 million penance or whatever to wash myself clean of the IGN influence. Basically, Hubble found this little guy, or I guess I should say this big guy, and it very well could be the largest black hole yet. Which is really cool. What else have we got to plump on up this rat for slaughter? Ah, here we go. There is now a map with every known volcano on the surface of Venus. There's not much else to say about it except that it's really cool and impressive and you should look it up if you're interested in seeing where all the volcanoes on Venus are. 
It is essential information. I will definitely be bringing it up in my next job interview. No, I haven't gotten any new job offers yet. Shut up. Shut up and listen to this next piece of science news. This one coming straight from the cow itself, NASA. Hubble has made a new discovery about Saturn, specifically the fact that its rings might be heating up the atmosphere of the planet. And I mean, how could they not? Those rings are Saturn's best feature, of course. They make the planet smoking hot. Not only is this an important discovery for Saturn itself, but knowing how rings around a planet can heat up a planet's atmosphere means that we can better predict whether a faraway planet has rings based on information we can gather about its atmosphere. Here's another exciting space-related thing. We may have found some water hanging around the moon. You see, there's these little glass beads on the moon. These glass beads are made from silicate particles that are heated to extreme temperatures as a result of collisions on the moon with things crashing into it. And based on samples taken from the moon, a new study claims there is water in these little beads. Ergo, there is water on the moon. It may not be in big flowing rivers or anything like that, but tons of little beads with water inside them, like a, mil like a, little, like a million little hot pockets, that stuff adds up. In fact, researchers believe that with all the water inside all these little glass beads combined, there could be up to 300 billion tons of water on the moon. This is seriously incredibly exciting, obviously, because, hello, water on the goddamn moon? That's kind of a big deal, guys, but of course, the boring, lifeless ghouls lacking a single ounce of passion or creativity, aka the bros, are taking this discovery a different way. Instead of being excited about the fact that there is water on the goddamn moon, and a lot of water at that, they're like, hmm, this could be most useful when we force peasants to live on the moon, and they could drink bead water. <laughs> no, I'm stopping you now, billionaires. Don't you dare try to use the bead water. It's an incredible discovery and natural resource of the moon. I will not live on the moon. I will not drink the bead water. Okay, I'm stopping myself before I get too enraged about bead water on the moon. We need some more positive, light-hearted, and fun little bits of science news before we end this week in space. Some four of my own little beads, but instead of water, they have science news. How about this? New amphibian just dropped. I think that should be something worth celebrating. Paleontologists have found some new giant alligator-like amphibians. Oh damn it! I bring the mistake of I made the mistake of bringing this up because now I'm going to have to try and pronounce its scientific name. Okay, the creature's name is Renesuchus. Probably still said it completely wrong, but at least that name was a little bit more fun to say than the others. I wish that was how scientists decided how to name things. Not based on whatever smart people stuff they use to decide names, but just on what would be fun to say. Anyway, this creature I'm just going to call Scrungle, because if you look up what the artist's renderings of him look like, what can I say? He's a Scrungle. These little Scrungles, or should I say big Scrungles, 
These big scrungles lived around modern-day South Africa 255 million years ago. They grew to be around 5 feet in length, so that's not scary at all. We have time for one more bit of science news. I want it to be something goofy, something spicy, something fun. And you know what? I just found exactly what I was looking for. Mountain lions fertilize their gardens with carcasses to attract prey. Mountain lions are gardeners, and they do it to bring more prey nearby. This is so fascinating. Mountain lions will take dead bodies, and as we all know, rotting bodies are great fertilizer for soil. Healthy soil means more plants and healthier plants and more plants and healthier plants means more animals are going to scamper on by looking for a treat. And then the mountain lion who had so tenderly cared for this garden now gets a treat of their own. Truly poetic, truly beautiful, and a true example of how when you give back to the world, the world gives back to you. And more proof that animals other than us are awesome and can learn cool things. But who cares about animals and this garbage planet? The time has come once again for everyone's favorite segment of everyone's favorite podcast, This Week in Space. Unlike last week, things will not be so exciting this week. We don't have a wacky alignment of planets to look forward to or anything like that. It's going to mostly be a kind of boring week in the sky. Except there are no boring weeks in the sky. I'm just gonna, I'm using this to weed out the weak ones who don't understand the true power of looking at little dots in the sky. Starting with the northern sky, we will be using Toronto at 10 p.m. this week. Honestly, I'm disappointed with myself for not using Canada as reference last week in the Can in the Canadian Canada episode, but what are you gonna do? We cannot regret the past, only move forward. As far as planets for this week, we've got Mars, Venus, and Uranus, though Venus and Uranus will be low in the sky in the west. Mars will be a bit higher up in the west, though, so that's at least good. As for the moon, it's going to be getting quite large and therefore quite bright, but the good news is that it should not be causing too much of a problem for anyone who wants to look at the planets, though it will be hanging out around Leo and causing some problems there if you are looking to catch that. By Friday, the moon will have left the night sky, and Venus will actually be a bit higher in the night sky, moving closer to Taurus. Also later on the week, Mercury is going to start creeping up and might, might, might be visible if you are far enough north and can catch it early enough. The winter sky with friends like Orion remains for now, but he is definitely on his way out. For the southern hemisphere, we will be using Jakarta, Indonesia, also at 10pm. I am pleased to inform the southern hemisphere that you will also be able to see Venus, Uranus, Mars, and maybe, maybe, maybe Mercury. They will be in your western sky as well, also hanging out around Taurus. Make sure to get out and see the planets as early as possible though, because some of them are going to be hanging out a bit low in the horizon, especially as the week progresses. For you, the moon might peak out just a bit longer on Friday, but for the most part, you'll be in the same situation as us in the north. The Big Dipper, or Ursa Major, is going to be the constellation of choice in the northern sky. Cancer is above Mars and the west. 
The summer sky continues for you, with Orion looking down like he's ready to take a break because the summer constellations will be on their way out before we know it. That does it for both This Week in Science and for this episode of the Acutely Obtuse Podcast. One whole podcast episode later and I am still stuck here in hell. Will I be able to escape my fate and make it up to heaven for the holy episode 7? Well, you'll just have to wait and see. That's right. Cliffhanger, baby. I'm leaving this episode on a cliffhanger. How's that for continuity, NASA? Will you give me my $5 now? Anywho, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Please, oh, please remember to take care of yourself and explore the universe some. I love you. Have a phenomenal rest of your week. And I will see you next time.